This is the Foot in the Box podcast for the week of Monday, June 27th. Hello, baseball fans across America. This is the Foot in the Box podcast. Across the, across the world. Yes, welcome to episode number 56. My name is Peter Elliott. And I'm Paul Elliott. This is a weekly uh, baseball podcast. Uh, we are twin brothers. We live in Champaign, Illinois. I am a Cubs fan. And, and I am a White Sox fan. Paul is a White Sox fan. Um, Paul, first, you were right about Game 7 of the NBA Finals, so props props to you. Uh, that's unfortunate. You're not, you're not right often on the podcast, but you were right in that case. Yeah, it was one of those that, uh, like, I think it was, like, the most torn up I've been about a team losing that I, like, wasn't a fan of. And I couldn't tell if it was more because LeBron won, and I don't like LeBron, or I just like the Warriors so much, and they lost, but... Do you think the Warriors have a chance of getting Kevin Durant? I think I'll stay in Oklahoma City. But what do you think? Uh, if I had to guess, I'd say he'd stay, but that would be a lot of fun to see him play with Steph and Clay. Uh, all right. Well, thanks to Nelly for our intro song. Our fun fact this week is that he has 4.17 million Twitter followers. He joined Twitter in the March of 2009. Uh, I joined in fall of 2009. Paul famously held out until, uh, was it 2013, 2014? 2014. Yes. Uh, are you glad you're on Twitter? Yeah, I'm glad. Especially with the podcast. It's ama- It's helped a lot. It's amazing how, well, I mean, like without Twitter or social media, like there'd be no way to get our product out to the masses. Definitely. Unless someone was just scrolling through uh, iTunes or something. Uh, Nelly's number of Twitter followers got me thinking about how many different uh, sports leagues have. Uh, it's one gauge of popularity, I think. Um, Paul, do you have any guesses for how many Major League Baseball has, how many followers? Hmm. Major League Baseball on Twitter has 10 million followers. They only have six. Mm. Any guesses for NFL or NBA? I'm saying they both have more NBA, I'll go 15, and NFL 20. So the NFL has 19 million and the NBA has 22 million. Nice. So I think... Uh, I don't follow MLB on Twitter. I do. do. Really? Yes. Yeah, so, I mean, obviously this isn't a gauge, a perfect gauge for uh, the, the popularity of the sport. But uh, I think with younger people, this is a pretty accurate you know, depiction. If you were to have like 100 uh, sports fans in a room, I think uh, maybe like... 10, 15% would be diehard MLB fans, and the rest would be split amongst the NFL and NBA. Hmm. But I, like going forward, MLB has to position itself well to receive NFL fans that potentially could tire of Goodell or just uh, stop playing because um, of the head stuff. But. It seems as though more and more people are uh, getting into soccer in America. I know. I've noticed that this past week. How many Twitter followers do you think the MLS has? Uh, MLS, I would say, has 2.5 million. I don't think it has a million. Let me look here. 2.38. They also follow 12,000 people. (laughs) Can't imagine. Someone looks at that feed every day. So Nelly has more followers than... The MLS. Yes. And two-thirds the amount of Major League Baseball. Peter, I feel as though you are stalling before we get to our chatter about the Cubs debacle of a week. <laughs> That's listed here, but first we have to Free-falling. Our... Six well, was, out of seven. I was stalling because I didn't want to give our Matt Bush update. Go his, ahead. His all-star candidacy has been... Greatly tarnished this past week. Uh, on Friday night, he was given his first big save opportunity. The Rangers are playing the Red Sox. Big series uh, preview of a potential ALCS matchup. Uh, in the bottom of the ninth, they brought Bush in with two outs. Uh, the tying run was up in the form of Mookie Betts. 
and uh, Bush just needed to get one out, but he gave up a game-tying home run and then gave up a walk, hit, and a wild pitch, which allowed the uh, go-ahead run to score, which eventually became the winning run as the uh, Red Sox won game one of that series. Um, But in my uh, weekly Sunday morning Google search of Matt Bush, I found a New York Times article uh, written on Sunday by Tyler Kepner, and um, it's kind of the first time I've seen Bush on record talking about how he's feeling and mm-hmm. what prison was like, and I uh, thought I'd read a quote from the article, and uh, we tweeted it out on Sunday, so you can go look there, but uh, Bush says in the article about his time in prison, I'd be sitting in there thinking about how nice it would be to be at the beach or fishing today, or how nice it would be to be in some locker room getting ready for a baseball game. You can't. There's nothing you can do about it. You're locked away. Your freedom's gone. Uh, Kepner also talks about how he talks about how Bush played uh, softball in prison, uh, but never really played baseball. Uh, never pitched in a slow pitch or never played catch uh, with anyone. Um, and uh, all the other guys took it more seriously. So it was only when he got out of prison that he started to play baseball and think about baseball again. So I thought that was an interesting article. Yeah, the Rangers are interesting because Colby Lewis, who had been their second-best starter, just got hurt. Hugh Darvish was already hurt. Even though they have, I think, the second-best record in the American League, uh, I still don't have a ton of a ton of faith in them. They have the best record. They have the best record? Yeah. I don't have a ton of faith in them, um, probably more so than the Orioles for sure, but I, I just don't picture them being a World Series contender. So this week it's the Rangers. Last week it was well, the Nationals. Who who would you say right now your top five is in baseball? Uh, top five in terms of World Series chances? Yeah. You go Cubs, despite their downfall. Uh, Giants, Rangers, Red Sox, Dodgers. Wow. Yeah. See, I just don't. Who would you? I'm not as high. Who are your five? Uh, I'd go Cubs, Giants, and then it is a crapshoot. Uh, I'd probably go Red Sox, Red Sox, Nationals, uh, Rangers, maybe at five. I, so I don't know. So two of your top five don't have, aren't legitimate World Series candidates. I yeah, I guess what I'm saying is that the Cubs and Giants are definitely going to win the World Series. Both of them, definitely. All right, well, as Paul said, the Cubs have had a very rough week. They went 1-6, and six, got swept by the Cardinals. Uh, Will Leach can celebrate that victory. They swept the Cubs at Wrigley, and then the Marlins took three out of four over the weekend. Uh, so, yeah, just not a, not a great week for the Cubs. Uh, they're tied with the Giants and Rangers uh, going into the games on Sunday with 48 wins. And so if the Giants win tonight, I believe... Uh, they will be the best team in baseball. Um, injuries have taken a toll. The bullpen's been very bad, and I think they'll trade for bullpen help here pretty soon. Um, the Yankees are just hanging around enough to not give up uh, or not want to trade uh, some of their bullpen help off. Um, but, yeah, they definitely need bullpen help, and they need guys to get healthy again. I was driving back uh, from uh, Chicagoland area this morning, and I was listening to sports radio, and it's amazing. Uh, some of the, like the fans—they're pretty negative. Yeah, just you know, saying like um, the team doesn't have any life; they don't have any energy. Uh, seems like they've—they're entitled now. Um, so yeah, all it takes is one bad week to cause fans to go from uh, just super excited to freaking mm-hmm. out. An older man at church this morning. Uh, uh, told me that he's glad, he's a Cubs fan, he's glad this is happening because uh, all teams that win the World Series go through adversity during the season, and he's seen a lot of teams that coast into the playoffs with no hmm. uh, kind of rough stretch. Um, I.e. Golden State Warriors? Perhaps, yeah. Perhaps. So uh, he was glad it happened. For me, you kind of have to recalibrate. Um, twice this year I've got into the mode where I'm rooting for them to win 117. And then uh, they lost a doubleheader to the Padres and played pretty poorly a week back in May, I believe, or late April. And now this stretch, uh, 
a few games in, you just have to recalibrate. It's like, all right, we're not going to get 117. We're still being the Cardinals, winning the division by 10 games. Uh, it's okay. Um, and then you can kind of cheer for your team again. But that recalibration is hard. Yeah, and what you have to remember is that the Mariners won 116 in 2001, but didn't win the World Series and mm-hmm. are kind of an afterthought. Definitely. Uh, Paul, the White Sox have had a good week. Yeah, beating up on the AL East. Just when you think Robin Matera is dead. They did find yet another way to lose yesterday. Mm-hmm. Uh, they hit seven home runs and lost. All all uh, solo shots. Yeah, and they out-homered uh, the Blue Jays 7-1 to one, uh, and lost, as I mentioned. That had never been done before in uh, Major League Baseball history. Te- if you Teams before that had out-hit uh, the opponent by at least six home runs were 146-0. and 0. Wow. Yeah, so just unbelievable. It tied the record for most home runs by a losing team with seven. Yep. Uh, Paul, do you know the record for most consecutive home runs in a game? Because the White Sox went back to back to back at one point. Uh, I'd say five. You think a team's in five? I do. No team has hit five home runs just in a row. four in a row? Yep. Many teams have done four. When was the last time? Seven or eight. Uh, the White Sox actually, actually did it in 2008. Tomi, Canerco, Alexi Ramirez, and Juan Uribe. Nice. Um, on uh, Monday, there was also um, another news story dealing with solo home runs. The Rockies beat the Marlins 5-3, to three, and all eight runs uh, in that game came from solo home runs. It was the highest run total where all the homers came from solo uh, solo shots. One more White Sox nugget, Paul. Uh, Tim Anderson has not walked in 74 plate appearances. I know. I keep like looking at his average, and I'm like, oh, if he's betting 287, <laughs> that means he's at least at like 310. But then his on base percentage is 287. That's what makes it so hard when you don't walk. Oh, yeah. Um, the league average, batting average, is right around like 255, 260. So he's doing much better than the league in average, hitting about 285, two, mm-hmm. 290. League average on base is 310, 315. So he's below average there. Yeah. The thing that drives me nuts about the White Sox is that uh, they um, will bring up these guys that have horrible walk rates. You know, Anderson was at 3 or 4% in the minors and hope that somehow, you know, he'll suddenly be able to walk mm-hmm. in the majors. Um, they've done this, like, just repeatedly that, to the point where now they've come out and said that they're going to start drafting more, quote-unquote, baseball players that can sort of manage the strike zone. But it just drives me nuts that they expect these guys to learn at the big league level when they haven't been doing it mm-hmm. in college, high school, or the minor leagues. Yep. If Anderson's good defensively, though, and hits for some power, he's above average. Well, yeah, and he replaced Jimmy Rollins, who was the worst shortstop in baseball. Yeah. All right, last thing I had is all-star voting. It ends this Thursday. Right now, your starters in the American League fans have done very well. Uh, you've got a very fun, uh, accurate lineup with Hosmer, Altuve, Bogarts, Machado on the infield with... Um, Perez catching from the Royals, and then the outfield, Mike Trout, Jackie Bradley Jr., and Mookie Betts with David Ortiz as your DH. Uh, any beefs with the AL voting so far? Uh, no. The outfield is Trout, Bradley, and Betts. Yep. Yeah, no, I think that's fairly accurate. Um, Could argue Donaldson over Machado at third. Donaldson yeah. leads baseball in war. Well, Machado's played a lot of short, too. So that confuses things a bit. Yeah. No, I, I'd say those are fairly accurate. Oh, yeah. NL, not so much. Uh, you got the whole Cubs infield. Rizzo, Zobris, Russell, and Bryant. Yadier Molina's catching, and then uh, Harper, Cespedes, and Dexter Fowler in the outfield. I actually voted for the first time on Saturday. I have not voted yet. Uh, right now, I think I voted for... Rizzo at first, but Goldschmidt probably deserves it more. Uh, I voted for, uh, I believe I voted for Zobris at second. Uh, Daniel Murphy, you can make an argument for. He's probably been more valuable so far this year for the Nationals. Uh, Diaz from the Cardinals, or sorry, no. he's had, yeah. Diaz has been better than Russell, but um, Corey Seager from the Dodgers. Yeah, he's been phenomenal. Uh, deserves it at short. And then Arenado and Bryant, kind of a dead heat at third. With uh, Buster Posey, probably deserves to catch. And he's, I think, Posey's going to catch Molina. Uh, Harper, Cespedes, Fowler, 
pretty, three pretty good picks in the outfield. Um, you, know, you can make cases for other guys too, but it looks like those three are going to be your starters. Um, yep, so that is the All-Star game. So go out and vote for who you think deserves to be out there. Not your uh, not your favorite team's players like the Royals and Cubs fans have done the past couple years. Yeah, and that actually leads us into our uh, listener email of the week from uh, David in Chicago. Yes, because I definitely remembered that. He writes in, uh, and I can handle this one, Pete. <laughs> he writes in to say... Uh, Here's a thought I had the other day. It's the year 2016, and you're in a Space Jam-like scenario where you need to win a baseball game or aliens will abduct you. They let you choose any nine players to play for your team. Who do you pick with your life on the line? And then he gives his lineup. Um, but I would go, just for one game. This current, is current day, right? Current day, one one game. I'd go Salvador Perez at catcher. Obviously, Posey would also be an option. Anthony Rizzo at first. Uh, you might think about Miguel Cabrera, but kind of factoring in defense, I'd go Rizzo. Matt Carpenter at second, who's having an amazing year. Um, OPS of 972. Bogarts at shorts. Uh, Arenado at third. Then an outfield of Harper, Trout, and uh, Lorenzo Cain with uh, Clayton Kershaw on the mound. Wow. It's a pretty good outfield. Uh, David, we disagreed at catcher. He had Buster Posey. He also had Daniel Murphy at second. Better offensive player than Carpenter, but I wouldn't like his defense in a one-game scenario. He had Correa at short, where I had Bogarts, and then he had McCutcheon in the outfield instead of uh, Lorenzo Cain. And he went with Madison Baumgartner, pitching because of his uh, clutch factor. Um, the ratings for that game would be off the charts. Yes, would you... Uh, and it, I guess it doesn't go into any detail about... Uh, how the aliens play. If they're is, there, is the aliens best pitcher left handed or right handed? It's a great question. But uh any uh, beefs with my lineup? I'll probably go posy. Catcher. Yeah. Without knowing kind of a roster uh scouting take on the aliens, it's hard to know what exactly you're looking for. In Space Jam, what like what was their basketball team like? And is that what we're in Space Jam, are they competing for Earth? Uh, I think you've seen it more recently than I have. I know. It was a couple years ago. David, maybe you could write in with your uh, recap of Space Jam. I forgot what it was. Because mm-hmm. I, I don't remember watching it with the same urgency. Like, uh, oh, we have to win this or we all die. But I, I think it's like an, ad, uh, an abduction question. Like they take over us. So I guess, yeah, we would hand over Earth. Wow. Anyways, David, thanks for the question. Yes. Uh, next week, I will give my, or the week after that, I'll give my all-time uh, lineup because that's what I was supposed to do this week, but I forgot. So. And if you have questions, like David, you can email us at afootinthebox at gmail.com. Please do. Please do. All right. It's time for our newest segment MacGyver in three minutes. Uh, this week, we're going to stick to the three minutes. Uh, Kevin went over a little bit last week with his recap. Uh, this week, we're going to do the three minutes again. So, Paul, uh, you're going to break out your phone over there and dial up the timer. All right, ready, set, go. All right, so for those uh, just listening now, haven't listened the last few weeks, MacGyver in three minutes segment, uh, just a fun thing that we do. Uh, so that we can justify uh, watching MacGyver. MacGyver, of course, is an 80s uh, TV show, seven seasons. We are season two. Uh, this week, we are recapping episode three, entitled Twice Stung. Uh, episode involves MacGyver, his boss Pete at the Phoenix Foundation, and their co-worker Kelly. Uh, Kelly is turning 60, and they're throwing him a surprise birthday party at the beginning of the episode. Kelly is falling on some tough luck, though and is attempting to commit suicide by uh, gassing his apartment. Gassing himself, yeah. And so uh, he doesn't show up at a surprise birthday party at the Phoenix Foundation. MacGyver you know, just feels it in his gut that something's off, so he goes to Kelly's apartment and breaks down the door with an elaborate uh, fire hose hooked to the elevator sort of thing. Gets him out of there, saves his life. Turns out Kelly... Uh, 
what's got him so uh, down is that he lost his life savings, $400,000 on a real estate scam uh, run by James Crow, who's a old school gangster sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, cops have never been able to get him, um, but he swindles a lot of honest, hardworking people out of money. A modern day Al Capone. Yes, and he he dresses like uh, an older Al Capone. Yeah, a white tuxedo, all, all white suits. Yeah, with a white hat. Yes. Um. So, Phoenix Foundation, MacGyver, Pete, uh, Kelly, and then a new Phoenix Foundation employee, Joanne, uh, develop. A, uh, a ruse to con the con man, mm-hmm. and they get um, get Mr. Crow to uh, give them $400,000 because I think Pete is an insider at the police station, and it's a very complicated plot line. I didn't follow it, to be honest. Uh, not my favorite episode. Um, how much time we got left? 40 seconds. Uh, what are your thoughts, Paul? Spot on, pretty accurate. Uh, I watched it as I was preparing for the podcast this week, so like you... Uh, difficult to follow at times. Uh, you didn't mention Kelly as a man, black man. Yes. I was, Kelly's not a typical male That's name. That's very true. Uh, the woman that's brought aboard, questionable why she was involved. Um, but that's She's an expert in these sorts of scams. Yeah, I felt like she kind of... Do, do we have... Is it relevant to baseball at all? Uh, I always try to tie it back. They meet the con man at a... Uh, they're betting at like a horse track, sports related. Which is a sport. Yes. Uh, no, I don't think so. Well, they, they get, MacGyver walks in on James Crow beating up a jockey for not uh, injecting horses with steroids. True. So, uh, you know, kind of like an owner getting mad at his players for not juicing. Yes. And that's the clip we'll end with. Ever hear of a blind trainer, Benny? Next time I tell you to dope a horse... I bet you do it. Take him down that way. That was MacGyver in three minutes. Next up, we have Out of the Box. All right. For Out of the Box this week, I read an article by Dave Cameron at Fangraphs uh, called How Much Will Yulieski Gorel Cost? Uh, He breaks down... um, Garel, who is uh, was just deemed by Major League Baseball as signable by teams, and just kind of goes through recent examples of uh, one Cuban players that have come over because um, Guriel is a superstar Cuban uh, infielder, and uh, also goes through examples of guys that have signed at age 32, which Guriel is 32 years old. So a few to consider. The Dodgers gave Hector Oliveira a six-year, a six-year, sixty-three million dollar contract last offseason. That did not work out well. Uh, is it Rusny Castillo or Rusny? Yeah, Rusny Castillo also did not work out well. Red Sox gave him seventy-two million dollars. Does uh, this does that include the money they do they have to pay any sort of like uh, when they fee, or is that only? Uh, I think that's only when they have a team. Asian players. <laughs> Yes, mostly Asian players. When they defect, there's no, uh, I don't think there's a fee. Okay. Um, uh, yes, Manny Tomas, uh, Diamondbacks outfielder, got $69 million and has produced negative 1.6 war to this point. So you're seeing a, a theme develop here that last few examples of Cuban players that have come to America not turning out so well. Um, but uh, Cameron includes a scouting report by Ben Badler, a Baseball America scout uh, comparing Guriel to David Wright says that he has an, has the attributes to be an above-average offensive player plus bat speed, um, good hand-eye coordination, that sort of thing. And so he he's pretty high on him. Um, Alex Gordon last offseason got four years and $72 million he, at the age of 32. So Cameron estimates that... Um, that Guriel won't get $72 million, but uh, will get somewhere in the range, he would say, of 30 to $35 million. Um, but Cameron isn't the GM of a lot of teams, and so I would estimate... Or that, any team. <laughs> correct. Um, I would estimate that some team will pay him like 60 to $70 million. This David Cameron you speak of? Yes. Is he... He's the 
uh, president of England? Uh, no. No, no, no. That is David the, Cameron. The, this the, is Dave Cameron. Oh. Yeah, rough Bo- week in Great Britain. How do you feel about the Brexit? Yeah, it seemed like a poor choice, but uh, I don't know what's on about it. I thought it was funny that Donald Trump went to Scotland and congratulated the country for standing up for itself when they had voted to stay. But Yes. All right, uh, I could listen to you pronounce Cuban names all day, but we have to move on. <laughs> Out of the box, uh, my article this week, uh, Paul, have you heard of Beat the Streak? Uh, I have, yeah. Okay. I actually have two articles. This this is the first one. Uh, so Beat the Streak, it's a thing MLB has done for probably a decade or so now. Uh, you pick a player, if he gets a hit, that's one Next day, you pick another hitter. has to get a hit. That's two. And if you get to 257, you win $5.6 million. Now, no one has gotten 57. A few people have come close. And now we have uh, the person that has come closest, and his streak is still going. So 63-year-old Terry Sims of uh, Arizona now has a streak of 50, uh, which breaks the previous record of 49. So he just needs seven more hits, and he wins the $5.6 million. There's a great write-up on MLB.com, and I'm going to read it for you because there's just a lot of great nuggets in here. So Matt Kelly writes the following. In the 16-year history of Beat the Streak, no player has been able to achieve the game's ultimate goal, of putting together a 57-game hit streak and surpassing Joe DiMaggio's record 50-game hitting streak in 1941. But now, 63-year-old Terry Sims is as close as anyone has ever been to capturing the coveted $5.6 million grand prize. Sims, an Arizona resident, made Beat the Streak history Saturday when he picked Houston second baseman Jose Altuve to extend his exhilarating run. Altuve went... Just one for five in Friday night's 13-run explosion by the Astros, but doubled in the first inning Saturday against Kansas City. That ran Sims' streak up to 49 games, tying Mike Carazia's 49-game string in 2000 for the longest single-season run in beat-the-streak history. Sims is now just seven games shy of DiMaggio's mark and an impressive 86% of the way toward the ultimate goal of becoming the first grand prize winner in beat-the-streak history. He admitted he had never before had a streak go past 20 games and remained humble in his reaction to tying the beat the streak record. Hard to believe it is me, Sims said in an email to MLB.com, just trying to keep the same routine and hope for the best. I'm picking guys who are good hitters and not facing the ace of the opposing staff. A look at both DiMaggio and Sims' streaks through 49 games reveal that Sims has arguably had a less stressful time getting to that point. Sims players have skirted by with a single hit in 24 times, while DiMaggio survived with a single hit in 32 of his first 49 games of the streak. Additionally, Sims players have entered the final plate appearance needing to hit four times, including twice by Altuve in the first 49 games, while DiMaggio came down to his final plate appearance seven times in that span. This is crazy, Sims said. Don't know how many thousands of people have played beat the streak this year, but to be on top is amazing. The current leader works a couple days a week at Antelope Hills Golf Course in Prescott, Arizona, a part-time job that, quote, keeps me out of trouble, he joked, (laughs) and said he hasn't employed many advanced statistics to help him keep up his record run. I am not your typical baseball nerd, said Sims, a former D-back season ticket holder. I can't recite stats like some guys can. If he does win the multi-million dollar grand prize, the retired candle maker said his current plans for the money are fairly modest. Our AC just went out, Sims said. It's <laughs> my favorite part. So if I win some money, Mike Little and the boys at Chino Valley Heating and Cooling will be happy we can pay for the new unit. So uh, that's Mr. Sims. And so this was written on Saturday. He's actually he's gotten one more on Saturday night. He got number 50. So uh, not sure who he picked on Sunday. You can probably Google it and find out if his street continues. But... Uh, we're rooting for you, Terry. Uh, we hope you get the $5.6 million. And if you do get it, we ask that you just give us a couple thousand. <laughs> Help the podcast. Is he active on social media? I wonder if there's any so way we could find out. I looked. Head. I Googled it. I could not find a Twitter account. Yes. I wanted to have him on. Um, 
he uh, he does not tweet apparently. And as a 62 year old, that's not surprising. All right, so that was my first article. A second one, uh, also from MLB.com, by Chris Landers. It is the origin stories behind 11 uniquely strange baseball terms. So the article is simply 11 weird baseball terms and their history. And, um, you know, we think of the term a certain way, but it actually is called that way because of something else. So you can go check it out. I'm only going to talk about three. Walk-off is the first one. Uh, Paul, do you know the term walk-off, how that started? I believe it was Dennis Eckersley that coined the term. Wow. Is that accurate? It is accurate. I've heard Sam Miller from Baseball Perspectives talk about this before. Okay. Yeah, so the first uh, reference to walk-off came July 30th, 1988, in a newspaper story. Um, Dennis Eckersley did come up with the term. He called it a walk-off piece. It's a home run that wins the game, and the pitcher has to walk off the mound. Um, yeah, so it's meant to refer to the pitcher yes. more so than the yes. like a negative term, yeah. Uh, it was only intended to describe a pitcher's dejected walk-off the field after giving up a game-losing home run, but it soon grew into its own phenomenon. And because the baseball gods uh, are not with a sense of irony, I'm quoting here from the article, uh, just a few months after Eckersley found himself part of one of the game's first official walk-off pieces, Kurt Gibson's home run, Game 1 of the 1988 World Series, which we have played the audio for before on Sounds of the Game. All right, so that's walk-off. The next one is the letter K to reference a strikeout. I have no idea when when that came about. Yeah, so it comes um, as a result of journalist Henry Chadwick, who came up with the box score. Um, His original system of keeping uh, a scorecard used only single letters, and he couldn't use S for strikeout because it was already being used for sacrifice. Now, you could say that a strikeout is much more common than sacrifice, mm-hmm. but maybe in his day, that wasn't the case. Uh, so the K uh, was used because it's the most memorable sound, according to, to Mr. Chadwick. Um, so it's stuck ever since, and uh, other things that have uh, stayed as a result of uh, Henry Chadwick, a uh, number of defensive positions, so yes, like a 6-4-3 double play, that would come as a result of Chadwick's system. The last one is Ephus. Ephus is uh, uh, an awesome part of baseball. It's a pitch where you just lob it incredibly high, throws off the hitter, because usually that's not what pitchers do. Uh, Paul, do you have any idea where the Ephus, that name, comes from? Hmm. No, it sounds like an international term. Mm-hmm. Uh, not really. No one really knows uh, how it um, came about. We know the kind of the story, but we don't know what the intention was. In nineteen in the nineteen forties, a pitcher for the Pirates um, during the off season took fourteen shotgun pellets to his right foot, and uh, because of all those what? those pellets to the foot, he had to make serious uh, alterations to his delivery. Um, maybe this was World War Two or something. Um, <laughs> it's kind of like. Uh, What's the Kevin Costner cuts off his thumb in the off season for love of the game? So the, he, he cuts Isn't off he, a finger. Well, he like cuts his hand or something. All right, uh, so he takes all these shotgun pellets, has to change his delivery, and his velocity was diminished. So he had to come up with a lob pitch as a way to keep hitters off balance. Uh, he in, uh, during spring training he busted out the new pitch, and uh, it was against the Tigers, and everyone was you know enthralled, stumped by this new pitch. Uh, Pittsburgh manager, according to the story, um, Frankie Fish was his name. He said, what was that thing? And the <laughs> outfielder for the Tigers said, Ephus ain't nothing. And that's a nothing pitch. Uh, to this day, no one quite knows what uh, the Tigers outfielder uh, named Van Robies meant by Ephus. Uh, the best guess is that Ephus really meant Ephus which is the Hebrew word for zero. Hmm. So perhaps Van was Jewish or something like that. Uh, yes, but the Ephus survives today. It's used a few times a year, I feel like. El Duque Hernandez was, was uh, famous for that. Cueto has one, I think. Yeah. Uh, some other terms that I'm not going to discuss, but if you're curious, you can go check out this article. 
We'll link to it in the podcast episode page. Uh, Cane of Corn, Pickle, Butcher Boy, Southpaw, The Hot Stove, The Baltimore Chop, Texas Leaguer, and Duck Snort. All right, that was Out of the Box. Next up, TWTW. When you can put some of those categories, you know, you got your OBPS and all that and the VORPs. When they put in TWTW and then interface those numbers with TWTW under that category, then you might have something cooking. What, what, what TW is. Yeah, what is that? That's the will to win. For TWTW this week, we are going to talk lineup construction and specifically addressing the question, uh, where do you put your best hitter? Um, conventional thinking, baseball conventional thinking, says three or four. That's uh, traditionally been where teams put their, their best hitter, third or fourth. Peter, do you have a, a say in the, the matter? Uh, I haven't researched it, but it seems like second or third is now the the best answer. Second seems to be mm-hmm. from big sabermetric people. Yes, that's exactly right, and that's where I want to steer the conversation. My perspective is that is that you want to put your best hitter where he can make the most impact. Um, and he can do that by getting to the plate more than any other player on your team. Mm-hmm. And so over the course of the season, any idea how many more plate appearances a two-hitter gets versus a three- or a four-hitter? Uh, they talked about this in Ben Sam's book. Uh, I don't think there's a huge difference between second and third, but I don't know, 10. Yeah, it actually works out to be about 30. Okay. Yeah, 25 Wait, to 30. So 30 games end with the number two hitter up. Yeah. So let's look at the Braves as an example. Um, 2016 Braves so far. Seems convenient. <laughs> the let's, two, let's look at the Diamondbacks. They don't have those stats in front oh. of them. The two spot for the Braves this year has 337 plate appearances, and the three spot has 325. So that's 12 plate appearance difference. The four spot has gotten 318, so that's almost a 20 plate appearance difference. So over the course of the year, that's going to work out to be about 25 to 30. Last year, 2015 Braves, uh, the two-spot got 726 plate appearances, and the three-spot got 699. So 27 uh, plate appearances. Did you just pick the Braves randomly? Uh, I looked at a lot of teams, but I want to talk about the Braves specifically because uh, the Braves have one good hitter, and that would be... A.J. Przinski. Freddie Freeman. One good hitter on, in, on their entire team. And he has, you know, 360 on base percentage this year, 473 slugging. Both are way better than league average. Everyone else is replacement level or worst. Um, and his regular spot this year has been batting third, which, you know, most people wouldn't say much about. Been batting behind uh, Ender, Enciarte, Daniel Castro, a few other bad hitters. Uh, their two spot has combined for an OPS of 564, which is more than 170 points below league average. So the Braves have given 12 more plate appearances to a below-average hitter uh, when those plate appearances could be going to Freddie Freeman, who's a plus 900 mm-hmm. OPS guy. So, yeah, when you look at it from that perspective, it doesn't make a ton of sense, especially when you know the only rationale that I could see for batting a guy, batting your best hitter third would be getting guys on base in front of him. But if, you know, in the Braves' case... You know, you have Enciarte or Castro who are below 300 on base. They're not getting on them a ton of time. So that's uh, is my TWTW. A few teams have been batting their best hitter second. Blue Jays bet Donaldson second. Padres bet Will Myers second. Reds have moved Joey Votto up to second. So it seems like a few teams are making Pirates try to do that with McCutcheon. Mm-hmm. And uh, even last year, I feel like the Cubs would bat. Uh, did Rizzo bat second a few times? Yeah. They've moved around quite a bit. I heard actually an interview with Joe Madden on Friday night's the pregame, um, and Fowler had just won on the DL. He's the normal leadoff hitter, and uh, he had moved uh, Bryant up to second in the lineup and Hayward up to first and then hit the pitcher eighth. And so his thinking was, uh, we got to get Bryant more at bats and have more protection for him, I think it was. I forget who was batting behind him. I think Rizzo was back in the lineup. So Rizzo was back, hitting third, uh, wanted Bryant to, to have some protection. Um, and then 
he wanted Bryant to come up with guys on base still, though, and so that's why he flipped eight and nine. Hmm. So Elmora hit ninth, and the pitcher hit eighth. Yeah, I think that makes sense. So that was um, one manager's way of thinking. All right, that was TWTW. Next up, we have Sounds of the Game. All right, this is Peter with Sounds of the Game. If you're new to the podcast, uh, Sounds of the Game is just a segment where we look at uh, one announcer, one broadcasting moment, something to do with uh, the sounds of baseball. Uh, so a couple weeks ago, I talked about Fangraph's uh, TV rankings, and we played for you the the Giants. They were the number one or number two choice behind the Dodgers, uh, but because we played so much Finscoli, we played some uh, some Dwayne Kuyper for you. Uh, the radio rankings have completed, and we'll link to those in the podcast episode page. The number one team uh, was a surprise because I had never heard them before. Paul, do you have any guesses? Or have you seen this? I have not. Uh, I will go. I like the Red Sox radio guys. So number one is the Rangers. Mm. Eric Nadell and Matt Hicks are the the two on that broadcast. Uh, Mr. Nadell won the 2014 Ford Frick Award, so he's in the Hall of Fame. Uh, he has been calling games for the Rangers since 1979, and both Nadell and Hicks have only been working games together since 2012, but they've uh, developed some good chemistry, and they're somewhat nuanced with baseball stats, new age stuff, and so that's why they have a, a good ranking from the Fangraphs audience. Uh, Hicks and Nadell both have never played baseball, so that's pretty interesting. Uh, they're both just lifetime broadcasters. Uh, they never played professionally. They probably played before graduating high school. Uh, Eric Nadell was the radio voice in the movie The Rookie. Jim Morris, which I uh, ended up on um, Jim Morris's Wikipedia page. He's the pitcher in that movie. His his real story is very similar to the movie. So, yeah. So in a couple weeks we can talk about him. Maybe we'll uh, resurrect the baseball profile for him. Because it is a tremendous story. All right, so we're going to listen to two moments to get a taste for Eric Nadell and Matt Hicks, uh, both of them involving the Rangers and Blue Jays. Just can't get enough of this back-and-forth battle. Uh, so first, I was interested in hearing their call of the Bautista home run last year in the ALDS, uh, which we heard last week as well. So the first is... Blue Jays Rangers, it's tied 3 3 in the seventh with Jose Bautista coming to the plate. Revere is out on the play. A force out, so there's no hit. Six to four on the force out, but Donaldson gets first on the fielder's choice, and he picks up an RBI here. And on the play, Goins advances to third. Could this game get any more bizarre? Well, I'd say no. But given all that has happened here in the seventh, I think the appropriate answer is yes. So now runners are at first and third. Two men are out. The game is tied. Here's Jose Bautista. Bautista one for three, an RBI double in the third. Goins dancing down the line from third. The pitch is cracked foul. Bounced over the ALDS logo and past the Toronto dugout on the third base side. Strike one. That run, of course, charged to Cole Hamels. It is an unearned run. The Rangers have committed three errors in the inning. Nothing and one the count to Bautista. Again, Goins at third, Donaldson at first. Donaldson a very short lead. Dyson with the 0-1 pitch, and he misses low and away with a fastball at 98. One ball and one strike. A broadcast brought to you by Capital One. Simply smarter home loans offered by Capital One, official partner of the Texas Rangers. One ball, one strike to count to Bautista. Infield and outfield playing him to pull. Dyson, the high set. He kicks and deals. Swing and a ball driven deep to left field. This ball is gone. Into the second deck. With one swing of the bat, Joey Bautista homers 
And the Blue Jays now lead it 6-3. For Bautista, his second home run of the series. His fourth RBI in the ballgame. And the Blue Jays have erupted for four here in the bottom of the seventh. Obviously an oversimplification. You can't give this team one extra out, not to mention three or four. Okay, so that was uh, the first moment. Obviously pretty dejected. Does, he didn't mention the bat flip. So that was interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah, pretty... Uh, I said dejected, but he actually wasn't. A pretty objective take of yeah. the uh, of the play. Uh, all right, so the next one, I was also curious, how did they react when uh, Bautista was punched in the face by Odor? So the second clip is May 15th, Blue Jays playing in Texas uh, late in the game. Uh, you all know the play, but let's let's hear their call of it. Justin Smoke will turn around to bat right-handed against Jake Diekman, who makes his 19th appearance. Diekman 0-1 to 263 earned run average. He was in the ball game yesterday, threw 17 pitches, did not face Smoke. Ranger infield a double play depth. Texas leading 7-6 in the eighth inning. Eighth inning brought to you by your Dallas Fort Worth Lexus dealers. A set by Diekman on the pitch, and he misses outside with a fastball at 95. Smokey today, one for four, a single, two strikeouts, and a huge double play ball in the fifth inning against lefty Andrew Faulkner with the bases loaded and one out. Here's the pitch, and that is down for a ball. When he hit into that double play, the game was tied 1-1. Rangers untied it in the bottom of the fifth. Holiday with a go-ahead double, then four in the sixth inning for Toronto. Three-run double by Bautista broke the 2-2 tie. Set by Diekman in the pitch, and Smoke hits a ground ball left side. Beltre picks to his left, throws to second for one, Ruggie to first, and Bautista goes after him, and Ruggie pushes Bautista, and they're in a fight at second base. Ruggie threw a couple of punches at Bautista, and the dugouts have emptied. This is a real Donnybrook. This is not just players standing around. There's a big flesh pile out in short right field. Hard to see what's going on in there. As there's a bit of a pile out in right. Things have for the most part calmed down now. Adrian Beltre has a hold of Jose Bautista. It's pretty it's pretty ugly in the middle there. We can't see it, but everybody's out there on the field and the punches are still being thrown. It all started with Batista on a hard slide at second base, trying to break up a double play. Odor shoving Batista in the chest, then the two of them coming together and punches being thrown. The dugout's empty, the bullpen's empty. And at that point, very tough for us to see who the actual participants were and who were playing the role of peacemaker. Well, I'll tell you this. Bautista went in with a hard slide and no intention of holding the bag. Oh, there's got to be a double play. There's no doubt yeah, about he that. He went straight past the bag, well past the bag, and Ruggie didn't even think about throwing to first base. Ruggie turned to face Bautista, and then punches started flying. Encarnacion's been pulled out of the pile by one of the umpires, but there's still guys that want to go at it here. Feelings, of course, going back to last October between these two teams. They had stayed under control for the first six games of this season series. This is the last game. Prince Fielder had a hold of Jeff Bannister there. I think John Gibbons may be on the field. Gibbons was thrown out of this game earlier today. Yeah, Gibbons is right in the middle of that pack. And uh, Dale Scott, the crew chief, is yelling at Gibbons. And right now, Prince and DeMarlo Hale kind of pushing at one another, just trying to keep the sides apart, but it's hard to keep sides apart when they're all together out there in right center. Well, most of the blue team is on the left, and the red team is now on the right. So that was that play. Pretty rational. 
pretty eh. pretty objective. They didn't really call out Odor. Yeah. Called it Batista for sliding out of the baseline, but they didn't call out Odor for punching him in the face. Yes. Uh, so that was Eric Nadell and Matt Hicks, the winners of the 2016 Fangraphs Radio Rankings. If you want to see where your team fell, check out footinthebox.com, episode 56. All right. Well, that was Sounds of the Game. Next up, close it out with Bottom of the Ninth. All right. First up, we have Say My Name. This week we are doing another contemporary player. Uh, last week we did Booth Bonzer. This week we are doing Corky Miller. Uh, Corky was a backup catcher for 13 seasons, most of them with the Reds. Also played a little bit with the White Sox, Braves, Red Sox, Twins. He have a Fu Manchu? He did. Very nice. I'll get to that in a second. His best year came in 2002. He never had more than 200 plate appearances in a year. Um and was only about a, a one war player in 2002. That was his best year. His tw- Twitter bio, uh, I'm Corky, that's it. Uh, he currently coaches a uh, single-A team for the Cincinnati Reds. There is a Facebook community called Corky Miller's Mustache, uh, named after, as you mentioned, his beautiful Fu Manchu mustache. Um, as I was researching him, I came across a Tim Kirkshen quote that I thought was interesting. He said, Corky Miller is the perfect name for a backup catcher. And hmm. uh, I thought that was accurate. Um, and I'm curious, when you think of a backup catcher, who is the first guy that comes to your mind? Uh, I have a Cub player. Uh, Navarro from the White Sox? No, Henry Blanco. Yes, also a very good backup catcher. Do you have a favorite backup catcher? Who? So I think of personal catchers first. Like Blanco was, was he Maddox's personal catcher for a while with the Braves? Uh, wasn't he Zambrano's with the Cubs? Yeah, I think he did a little Braves work, too. Um, so David Ross, pretty solid backup catcher. Mm-hmm. Trying to think of other personal catchers. Uh, yeah. It's hard to... That be that would be a good uh, blog post. Because if you... To make a career as a backup catcher is hard. Because if you're a good catcher, you're eventually going to become a backup, mm-hmm. like Buster Posey. Yeah. Probably will become a backup catcher in like 10 years. Matt Trainer was another one Kirkson mentioned, uh, who's the wife of a famous volleyball, Sam volleyball player. Huh, yeah. Uh, yeah, would, you said you thought of Henry Blanco. Anyone yeah, else? he's no, he's definitely the first one that comes to mind. Um, yeah, no, uh, I mean, Corky Miller played for the White Sox for a couple of seasons, so I also think of him. Toby Hall was another Rays and White Sox hmm. catcher. I wonder who Maddox personal catcher. Eddie Perez. That's who I was trying to think of. <laughs> Looks very much like Henry Blanco, so maybe that's what I was thinking. All right. Oh, that was a good name. Uh, has he been murdered? He has not been murdered, no. no. I guess that one guy wasn't murdered. What was his name? Uh, Jack Dalton. That's right. All right, my Yahoo Answer of the Week. This question comes from Fungo, a great username. Mm-hmm. That could have been a podcast name. Yeah. All right, so the question is, why is the U.S. College Baseball Championship Series called the College World Series? Unlike the Major League's World Series, why does the College World Series use the term world? Only U.S. colleges qualify for the tournament. Great point. So the college baseball tournament, or the World Series, is going on right now, actually. Paul, do you know who's in the final? Uh, I was watching it last night. Coastal Carolina and Arizona, right? Yes, and I believe Coastal Carolina, they're probably going to win it, seems like. I know they won last night. Yeah, I haven't followed it too closely, but I know both teams were, were underdogs to start. Yes, the Elite Eight was Miami, Oklahoma State, UC Santa Barbara, Florida, Texas Tech, TCU, and Coastal Carolina. And, of course, that's played in Omaha, Nebraska. ESPN has been showing many commercials for it. I have watched very little. All right, so, uh, Paul, do you have any thoughts on why it's called the College World Series and when it's just a U.S. thing? Uh, a similar sentiment to when you know a team wins the NBA championship, we say they're the best team in the world. Just kind of a 
American exceptionalism arrogance. <laughs> All right, so the best answer, as voted on by Yahoo users, uh, says the following. Could or should other colleges in the world be eligible, and where would the money come from to finance out-of-the-U.S. college baseball? There are enormous startup costs, for example, and all sorts of logistical problems to be solved before such a thing could happen. In the meantime, however, to directly answer your question, I don't believe that the reason could be anything other than our national hubris and arrogance that only the U.S. could play interesting and competitive college baseball. I think by now that idea is quaint and that the program should be looked at in a more critical way. So you were correct, Paul. Are you agreed with this Yahoo user? Yes. Uh, is he using the word quaint in the right way? That would be the only question I would have. Yeah, quaint is kind of a positive term, right? I always call like a a nice small town that you visit on vacation like as quaint. Yeah, attractively unusual or old-fashioned. But it's, yeah, attractively old-fashioned. Yeah, I guess that's right. No, he's saying... Yeah, it's an old-fashioned, outdated rule. But quaint is like a an attractively old-fashioned thing. The idea is outdated. It should be looked at again. Yes. He meant to say. Other than that, I agree with him. Do you agree with him? Sure. <laughs> sure. All right, uh, last thing, pick your team. Paul and I each pick a team each week. Can't pick the same team twice. And uh, the loser of this season-long battle has to record the intro batter-up song by himself. Paul, I hope you're preparing your pipes because you are seven games out right now. That's nothing. Um, So actually eight games with the Rockies losing. So last week I had the Orioles. They went five and two. They actually lost their first two games of the week, so I was nervous. Then they rattled off five straight wins, including four against the uh, Tampa Bay Rays, who are really struggling. And then the Rockies were Paul's pick. They went three and four uh, this week. So overall, I have a record of 50 and 25, better than the Cubs. First week I can say that. And uh, Paul, you are 44 and 33. So I guess first... uh, what do you say to your team's poor performance? And two, who is your team for this it's week? A, it's a long season, and I will take the Blue Jays. So in your mind, you think you're going to win? Uh, I wouldn't say I'm going to win. I can. I think I'll, it'll be competitive. I'm sure if I did a statistical breakdown, I would guess that you've taken more of like the better team so far. That's one way to think about it. There'll be some regression as you have to pick... The Rockies of the world? I would say the eight-game difference is mainly attributed to the fact that I look at schedules, mm. and you don't. It's debatable. So you have no idea who the Blue Jays are playing this week. Who, that's correct. Who's your team? That's why week? you're losing. Who's your team this week? I have the Orioles. Or I had the Orioles last week. I have the Red Sox because they play the Rays and the Angels, two terrible teams. We'll see. Maybe the Rays and Angels are just about ready to hit a uh, winning streak. All right. Uh, well, that does it for our podcast. Paul has a week off next week. It's the annual Friendcation podcast, I believe episode 13. If you want to go back and listen to the first one, my friend Matt and I take a road trip every summer on a weekend. So Paul and I can't record, so Matt and I record. We're not exactly sure where we're going to record it from this year. Last year we were at a Cubs-Indians game during a rain delay. Probably can't recreate that magic but uh, because it's illegal. Well, we did play-by-play, which is illegal, but the rest, I think, was pretty legal. This year, I think we're going to a Twins... Uh, I forget who they play. It's Irvin Santana Bobblehead Day. <laughs> uh, so I think we're going to go to that. We'll probably record from that game. Maybe if we're feeling courageous, interview some people at the game. Um, so that's next week. Paul, enjoy your, your week off. Yeah, I look forward to hearing your guys' podcast. Your, your podcast with Matt from last year is one of my favorites. All right, you can subscribe to our podcast on iTunes. Leave us a review there. Help us get the word out to more people. Uh, you can send us an email, like Paul mentioned earlier, at afootinthebox at gmail.com. We would love to get your emails. Uh, you can follow us on Twitter at afootinthebox, and check us out online at afootinthebox.com. You can find all the old episodes there, along with articles we've talked about and blog posts that Paul and I have written.
Uh, I think that doesn't. Paul, you got anything else? Nope. Just a reminder to keep a foot in the box. I will talk to you next week. Paul will talk to you in two weeks. Adios. The pitch to A-Rod. There's the Ephus pitch up high. Want to know the ultra change, but not thrown for a strike. For all we know, maybe El Duque doesn't want to throw it for a strike. Maybe he wants the hitter to try to jump out of his shoes and swing, but thus far, most of the hitters have refused to swing. And it'll be a 1-0 to A-Rod. Another one is swung on, hit high in the air to left. White back, looking up. That ball is gone. Oh, A-Rod double-clutched and waited on the change and hit it a mile high and deep to left for a home run. Well, that's a great job of hitting by Alex Rodriguez. Folly floater this, says A-Rod to El Duque. He just waited on that pitch to come out of the sky, and he looks back at El Duque as if to say, bring it on again. Well, El Duque is victimized by the the ephus, the, the slow pitch, whatever you want to call it. It took forever to come out of the hand of El Duque and took an instant to get over the fence. Now-